What if there was a mysterious society that channeled the currents of Hollywood from the shadows of the industry, pulling the strings of film and TV production, deciding who makes what and why and how, barricaded from the outside world by invisible elections and powerful networks? And what if that society was hidden in plain sight in the credits of the movies and TV shows we watch every day? Today, Sean Albertson, one of Hollywood's top living editors, have earned hundreds of millions of dollars of box office returns, takes us behind the closed doors of the enigmatic American Cinema Editor Society and answers the big question. What does it take to join ACE? My father was a film editor and the story I was told later, uh, the part of the story I know is that I went home one day, and I guess I was in 11th grade in high school and told my parents I was not going to take the SATs and decided not to go to college just yet. I was going to pursue a career in music and or the restaurant industry. Both were careers that my father had been in before he became a film editor. Um, and then the story I was told years later was that my mother said to my father, you better bring him to work and show him what real life is like, because that kid needs to go to college. Uh, so uh, it's essentially how I got my start. My I graduated high school. My father brought me into, I grew up in New York and had me spend four weeks just seeing what he does and seeing how they do it and um, uh, sort of looking into the idea of film making as a job, really just a job at that point. So you learned watching him, him work. Was he giving you parts to play in that? Did you ever get to organize footage? Ultimately what happened was he put me with an old assistant of his who was now editing some, some lower budget things, uh, mostly TV movies. My dad was sort of the, the king of uh, TV MOW editors in New York at that time. This was in the, in the mid eighties. And, um, um, so he stuck me with an old assistant and I did, I interned for an entire low budget movie. And then, and there is where I got to learn sort of the ins and outs of the editing room. I had not at that point learned anything about editing itself. Uh, 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 from a creative standpoint, it was all about the technicalities of running the editing room, what the, what I need to do as an assistant editor to provide for my editor. Uh, and it was all very, very technical. Uh, uh, it still is, but it was even more so back then because it, it was all very hands-on uh, actual film, right? So like, you know, at that time, it was 1986, and um, everything was still being edited on 35 millimeter, 16 millimeter with the big clunky pieces of equipment that they would use. Cool. And so what led to that first uh, job where you were the lead editor after, after this time working as an assistant? I got my first apprentice film editor job and, and got into the union and worked my way through the assistant world. Um, and I really had no, I still hadn't really studied film editing at that point, really didn't really understand it. It was all, it was all the technical aspects of being an assistant editor. Um, and my passions at the time were, uh, were music and, uh, and food cooking. Both of those passions I had gotten from my dad, who, as I said, had been a musician and a, and a chef before, uh, before I was born. Um, and somebody 
contacted me who apparently had gone to my high school, who had graduated a couple of years after me. He was a student at N a film student at NYU. Somebody had said to him, Sean Albertson is a film editor. I was not. I was an assistant film editor, but he called me and said, I'm doing my senior thesis. I need an editor. Would you edit my senior thesis for no money? And so I said, sure. And then I went to my dad and I was like, well, how do I do that? <laughs> so that experience, finally asking my father for sort of guidance in uh, in like, how would I do the job that you actually do? Not, not the job that I've been learning, which is, which is how to log and, and, uh, uh, and draw grease pencils on film. All of the creativity that I love about music and about cooking were sort of transmuted into the art and craft of filmmaking. In fact, I've had directors come over for dinner at my house that I've worked with. And, and a couple of them have said to me, you know, watching you cook is very much like watching you edit my movie. Like, and so and I really credit my, my father with, with helping me find those creative connections, right? If like, try a little of this, that's not working. You know, this is kind of sour. That's not what I'm looking for. How do I, what do I do next to figure out how to provide for my audience what I'm trying to provide for them. Uh, I do that when I cook and, and, and clearly do that as a film editor. That's awesome. <laughs> it's a fun, like there, you know, there is no one way to become an editor or, or, you know, or really anything that we do in this industry. Um, and I love that. Like it, it, it feels like a very unique story as they all are. And I love that, you know, my dad was able to provide that for me. And so you were helping film students with their thesis films, but you yourself had not gone to film school. Is that right? That is correct. I went right out of high school, started, uh, you know, just sort of hanging around and then did an internship and then sort of worked my way up through the apprentice assistant mm -hmm. An editor thing, and you know, becoming an editor, a lot of a lot of people sort of work their way up through the assistant ranks, and then editors let them start to cut things. That isn't really my story. I, I worked with a great old editor named Sam Osteen, who you know was a mentor in some ways, more in like how to how to get your rate, you know, oh. as high as you can get it. That's important. It wasn't like a creative partnership like some like I, I like to have that with my assistants I always let everybody edit and, and I and I, you know I let them bring me things and show me and I note and, and do all these things um, I didn't really have that also because my dad was not editing anymore at that point mm. um, and so I just started looking around and and trying to get my hands on anything I could edit uh, and at one point I was uh, an assistant editor on a big movie um, that I got fired from because I was kind of a shitty assistant editor. And, uh, and I was in Los Angeles, still living in New York. And I decided, you know what? I, and I had sort of followed a, a girl out to Los Angeles as well. And I said, I'm just going to move here. Um, this is where everything's happening. I want to be an editor. I don't want to be an assistant anymore. I'm not a very good assistant. So um I moved everything across the country and I just started cold calling and, and mailing at the time, not even emailing, cold calling and mailing um, all the post-production people I could like think of, people I had worked with as an assistant, people, you know, who, who were heads of post-production and, um, 
And the kind of short version of it is um, I got a guy on the phone. He was the head of post-production for Spelling Entertainment TV at the time. Um, and he was like, all right, I've got this, you know, really low budget, super ambitious little TV show. Like there's no money. Why don't you edit it? And that was kind of the, the start. <laughs> cool. So pause the story for a moment and dig into what, what was the role of the assistant editor then? And how has that changed for today's films and TV shows? It's very different. It was a very clerical uh, and physical job, right? Mm. So we would get rolls and rolls of 35 millimeter picture and sound. Um, and so our days during the shoot were filled with putting these rolls of film through a hot machine that would put code numbers on it, running that film through a synchronizer and logging in a logbook, handwritten logbook, um, all of those numbers that we put on, the latent edge numbers, which are tiny and backward and upside down as you're rolling through and you have to learn to read those, uh, putting all that in a logbook, syncing the picture to the sound, uh, and then and the, the logging is what, what numbers indicate what scene and take number this is. So then we take all that information, take the sound and picture, which we have sunk together, break those down into small rolls of, you know, scene one, take one, uh, with a little handwritten piece of paper on top of it so the editor knows what this roll of film is sitting on his table. Um, so that's sort of the main job while they're shooting a movie. Uh, and, um, and then just, again, just prepping that stuff so the editor has what the editor needs. And, and then another big part of the process of the job, which is, I think, how mentoring really happened back then, was one assistant would often stand right over the shoulder of the editor because the editor, once once you cut open those rolls of film, you had to hang the other pieces that you're not using in this film bin um, with that little piece of paper. And so the editor would often just sit, look at the line script, which tells you what was shot and what the take number is. And the, the editor would say, okay, I'm looking for you know this this code number on this take. And the assistant editor would stand there siphoning through and then hold the editor a piece of film. So manual. Wow, that's amazing. <laughs> like I remember, you know, there was one point when I was an apprentice film editor and there was a guy like installing telephones in our room. And and he they, he was there all day long. And he like at the end of the day, he was like, so you just turn that wheel all day? That's your job? <laughs> like I was like literally cranking a film reel That's wild. This, would your arm tire would you get exhausted or cramp yeah yeah shoulders like i had really good shoulders back oh i'm sure you did <laughs> working out all day wow that's how assistants used to get to learn how to edit they would literally stand over the shoulder of their editor mm. watching every cut they're making mm. um and so i think that was a great that's training cool. ground yeah. yeah and would you ever make suggestions or uh, or ask ask questions to Leads uh, you know, my, my assistant career wasn't quite what I was just describing. Like I, mm. I ultimately, it was like my first, my first 
job as a first assistant editor on a big movie, I ended up getting fired from for a number of reasons. So I usually wasn't, I was like the second assistant or the apprentice. And I was usually the guy in the back room with the hot machine, putting numbers on it. You know what I mean? So um, I wasn't really the guy standing over the shoulder. What did you get fired for on that feature? Um, I mean, I'll make a, a long story short. So I was uh, I was a second assistant editor for Sam Osteen, who had edited all of Mike Nichols' movies oh, up wow. to that point. They were splitting up. Okay. Uh, they had decided whoever I don't know who it was that made the decision. They were not working together anymore. So this was their last film. So I was on their last film together. Mike Nichols goes to direct The Birdcage, and is hiring Artie Schmidt as his editor. So Mike asked me if I because Mike had been working with Sam for. 40 years and, and wanted a little bit of comfort in the editing room. And so he asked me if I would, if I would come on. And I said to Mike, I would love to, but I really want to be editing. If I could be like some kind of editor on the movie, I would love to do that. So Mike flies me out to LA to have lunch with Artie Schmidt. We have a great lunch. Ultimately, the short story is I thought I was being hired as like a second editor or a co-editor. Um, he thought he was hiring me as his first assistant editor. Um, when we finally, <laughs> because that never came up in the conversation during our lunch, when we finally had that conversation about a month and a half into the job, um, he said, no, I'm not. I don't need another editor. I'm not hiring another editor. Do you want the job as my first assistant? I said, yes. And then two weeks later, he just said, you know what? It's just not working out. Um, how has that role of the AE evolved today? What is your team? How do they support you? Well, I am probably more interested in, in creative, in, in having the best creative support from my team. So rather than the technical stuff. So for instance, not, not more interested, but cause the, they, they've got to set me up the way I need to be set up to do my job. Right. That's super important. But what comes first and foremost for me when hiring a crew, particularly a first and a second assistant editor is, are you good with sound editing? Can you do, you know, some, semi-basic temp visual effects? Can you do some color correction in the Avid? Uh, can you edit? Like I love having my team do edits. There are times at which I'm, I'm going through material, I'm trying to put a sequence together. And in that moment, my brain cannot get it right. I cannot wrap my head around creatively what I'm looking for, what the footage is telling me, what the director wants, and I'll have to let it go. Sometimes, I will literally pass that along to an assistant and say, put something together. And editing is very difficult to do from scratch. Uh, putting it together for the first time, assembling a scene is kind of the most arduous, it might, probably my least favorite part of the process. It's the most internally combative for me because constantly questioning, uh, is this the right move? Am I doing this correctly? Um, and then it's always much easier to re-edit something mm -hmm. or to rewrite something yeah. once it's already put together. So um, the role of assistance ha has obviously changed. It's less physically taxing in that you're not carrying around <laughs> reels of film and running them through machines right. and having to log. And a lot of that metadata that I was telling you that I used to write in this log book um, 
uh, is usually um, already added. It's it's coming from camera, going to the the facility that's that's creating your your dailies for you and Avid or whatever program you're using. And there's tons of metadata already built in. Usually, it's already sunk as well, picture and sound. So. So the assistant's job at that point is to lay out that footage the way the editor uh, um, can best take it in. Like me, for instance, the way I have my my editing bins, I've got you know uh, I've got it in frame mode, and I like to have it laid out in a certain way with you know wide shots first, and then everything on that side of the line, and then everything on this side of the line. Um, uh, I'm sure all editors have things set up differently, but so it's to really set that stuff up the way the editor wants. It's dealing with all kinds of, uh, requests coming in from other departments. And, um, and then really importantly to me is like, let's, you know, what, what we do, I believe is all about presentation, which means that the work I'm doing as an editor, putting these scenes together, I want that to have its best shot being presented. So I want... Um, a pretty extensive sound and temp music job done before we show it to anybody. I heavily rely on my crew to help me with that stuff and also editing, you know, like creatively I'm, I'm asking for, for people's opinions. I want to know, like, do you think this works? If it doesn't, like what, why don't you think it works? If I think something's working and an assistant comes to me and says, I think it would be better if you tried this. I'll just say, yeah, go ahead, go for it, show cool. me. What's the typical career path of someone who starts as a second assistant? How do they get to you? How do you find them? And then are they often, are they typically working their way up to be a, a lead editor on features or TV? I find that usually assistant editors are sort of trying to work their way up. When I first got into this business in the 80s, nobody, Nobody was really looking to become an editor. Not many people really knew what editing was. Oh, interesting. Um, like people sort of happened into it. Like my dad happened into editing. I find that there were a lot of musicians that sort of like somehow ended up in, in like a control, a music control room, you know, person. And then they somehow like got into like film sound and then somebody kind of was like, Oh, they put these things together. Funny. Nobody, you know, there, there wasn't at that time, there was, as far as I knew, there was no like film school mm -hmm. editing classes. Like it was like, you know, you're, you're learning how to be a filmmaker and sure they show you the machinery and how to, how to cut your things together. But, um, but you know, yeah, I'd say most assistant editors uh, ultimately are looking to become editors and um, and you know like I said before there there's no real there's no one path I mean the the absolute path I think to succeeding to becoming an editor and, and succeeding as an editor is just to do the best like just kick ass you know just do the best job you can do whatever task you're being given you know I, I've had my my current first assistant editor on the movie I just finished was my PA, was my editorial PA six, seven years ago. Um, and so I had this movie come up. I was looking to crew in New York. It was a very difficult time to crew because everybody was extremely busy. And this guy who had been my PA, who was a great PA, I mean, talk about like, you know, whatever your task is, do it well, 
be thoughtful about it. Details matter. That's the, that's what I believe. That's how I do my job. That's how I ask the people who work for me to do their jobs. Um, and that's how he did his job as a PA, getting coffee, getting lunch, um, um, checking in, making sure we were okay, anything else we need, that kind of thing. And so he stayed in contact with me over the years. And um, when I was looking for a first and second assistant editor in New York, he uh, he contacted me and saw on some posting that I was looking. And we talked about him being the second assistant editor. Everybody was super busy. And then I talked to a couple of people who were qualified, but it, I just wasn't feeling it. Um, and so I said to this guy, like, how about you're the first assistant editor and we'll hire somebody else as the second assistant and whatever you lack in experience, like just kick ass and be willing to learn. And he was like, great. And it, and it worked out great. So you know, so my, my best advice is always do your best always like life is life and we all have shitty days and, and, and bad things happen around us. But I like to enjoy being at work and, um, and, you know, again, I have bad days and, and, you know, fight in the family or somebody gets sick or whatever it is, but we have a lot of fun on my cruise. And, um, and so, just have a, you know, as positive an attitude as you can have and, and at least pretend you want to be there. <laughs> and for me, that's how you get on my radar. Like for me, it's like good attitude. If I don't know something, I'm going to do my best to figure it out. Um, I don't, I don't want to hear no, or, or I don't know too many times. I like what I'd rather hear is like, I, I'm okay with, I don't know. I just don't want, I don't know, period. I want, I don't know. Let me right. look into that right. and get back yeah. to you in a little okay. while. And how important is their, their reel or their samples for that, getting that second assistant job? Let's say they've been cutting like their own commercials or their own music videos or things like that. Does that make a difference? I have never had an assistant. Um, Cause anytime I interview my assistants, I certainly tell them, you know, I'm really looking for somebody who, who can do all the technical stuff, but but who's also interested in the creative and, and can be helpful in the creative. Um, I think it would be super cool if an assistant said to me, Hey, check out, check out my reel, check yeah. out my website. Here's the stuff I've been doing. Um, I think that would be great. I could look at something and be like, wow, that's the sound work yeah. on that is great. So what's the best way for them to learn that technical stuff that you're looking for? Trying to get in as a editorial production assistant, post-production assistant. Um, and, and then when you're there and you're doing a great job, say to the assistant editors, the second assistant, the first assistant and, and the editor, um, I, I'm here to learn. Like, I'm going to do a great job for you. What, what else can you give me that, that like, what can I do for you to take some load off uh, what you're doing? Um, that's a great way. Obviously, you know, YouTube videos on learning the systems that we use, like Avid. I tend I tend to edit with Avid Media Composer. I would recommend learning Premiere and DaVinci, um, maybe even Final Cut Pro, even though nobody really seems to use that anymore. But I would say, you know, for television and features, first and foremost, Avid Media Composer, and there's plenty of free 
uh, uh, video guides out there to help people learn that stuff. And and then again, really importantly, is to is to get in to a situation where you're connected to the actual process because learning how those softwares work is one thing, but learning how the editing room system mm. works is completely different. You can know you can be a a technical whiz at Avid Media Composer, it definitely does not mean you have the skills to be my assistant editor. There are ways that we do things. There are ways that things are organized and uh, and templates made and um, line scripts and all kinds of things that 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 go into it. And so I think you know learning. So knowing how to use the softwares is is super important. Obviously. So if we have a PA. If we're interviewing for production assistant um, and the production assistant says, I, I know Avid, I know Premiere, uh, I know DaVinci. Um, so, you know, whatever you guys need me to do there, that's like cool. that's a yeah. that's a real plus for me. And that, that also tells me that person wants to be there. How do they find that PA job? I mean, this sounds like a very rudimentary question, but where where do they look? I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's rough. It, it, it's such a like, you know, getting figuring out like where to where to go to get these jobs like you go to things like facebook has all kinds of groups you know this this assistant i was just telling you about he's a member of all these like you know i need an assistant mm -hmm. editor facebook group just somehow find the people to reach out to it probably start on facebook uh get the names find people like me like the truth is my my email address and probably phone number on IMDb and I get emails all the time of like, Hey, I'm, I'm trying to bring, um, and, and I always, I always answer ultimately. And I, and I always do what I can to help because it, it's a tough business to break into until you know everybody. Uh, and so it's like, find people like me, find people like my assistant editors and say, I'm super interested how do I do this? Can I can I intern for you? Like I always recommend, particularly for people coming in at the beginning, hopefully your overhead is pretty low at that point in your life. Like be willing to intern, be willing to say, um, I, I'll come in, I'll kick ass, I'll do whatever work you want me to do if you will show me some stuff. And and that does two things. Uh, one is it you get to prove to to these people that you're a worthy worker that they would be like oh maybe we should hire this person as a PA, um, uh, and then two you know you're you're getting to learn all, all the things you need to learn and I have another uh, a guy who started as an intern for me on a on a movie who by the end of that movie was a union assistant editor. He was an unpaid intern on day one and a union assistant editor at the end because he showed up. He was the first one there, last one out uh, every day as an intern. And I love that. Will you tell me about how the union works for editors? And I'd love to hear about ACE, how you become elected to ACE and what it means for you. The Motion Picture Editors Guild, it protects the workers. Obviously, it's it's a union. It protects the workers. Getting in is kind of a strange animal. I don't know exactly how it works. This intern I was telling you about who was a union assistant by the time we were done, we hadn't realized it, but we had started that movie as a non-union show. We didn't 
the edit, editing crew didn't know this at the time. And before they finished shooting, we found out and the union found out. And of course we, we got turned into a union show. Well, he was already, he was already on the show as a paid PA at the time we called him an apprentice. And so since he was already being paid as an apprentice film editor, um, they had to allow him in because the show was going union. Um, so that's one way to get in. Other ways are you have to have a certain amount of hours worked on non-union projects uh, in the category that you're trying to get in as. Um, ACE is an interesting one for me, ACE, because I, you know, I just have not been as involved in in ACE as as I had wanted to be when I joined, and so getting elected to ACE. Uh, uh, that's funny. I elected myself. So what I, what I did was, because I, I used to go to the um, the Ace Eddie Awards, right? The editing awards uh, when I could get a ticket or when I would get invited by a production company that I work with. And I just loved, loved the camaraderie. It just was sort of the first time in my life, the first time I went to one of those award shows, I was like, wow, there's, there's like hundreds of other people who do what I do and they like, they're talking about it. And they, I, I was never a part of an edit, you know, an editor community. I didn't have friends that were editors. I'd one, my best friend is an editor, but, um, but I wasn't part of that community. And so I'd go to these things and be like, wow, what an amazing. It's such an isolating career. You're alone in the dark. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I, I was so sort of turned on by it and how kind of cool it was that, that, you know, we all do things and we all do things kind of differently, but with the same goals. And, um, and it was just so much fun. And so I decided like, I want to be a part of this. And so I looked into it and, and started looking at all the things that they do. And, and they're, they're really about, about connecting in the editing world and connecting outsiders to the editing world and letting, letting the world yeah. know what we do as an art and a craft. And I got so excited. So I, called them and said, what do I need to do to get in? I happened to have been working down the hall from the woman who basically runs ACE. And she told me, she said, you need two letters of recommendation from, from ACE uh, editors. And then there's this process. And so the board of members had to agree that that was enough to uh, to interview me. And then I did an interview process with them. Um, uh, they asked me a bunch of questions and, and what, you know, what would I be interested in, uh, in, in doing? And, and I love teaching about editing. I love learning about editing. And so, you know, I was like, yeah, I want to be a part of all these panels that you have and, and the voting registry, you know, for, to vote for editors. And, and, you know, I started by doing a few panels and, and, and voting on some panels and then, um, you know, life and work took over and suddenly I'm like, I, I can't, and then, and I travel a bunch for work and suddenly I'm wondering like, how do editors actually find the time to be a part of, and there's some guys, there, there, women and men in, in ACE who do amazing stuff. Like the, there's a, uh, an old uh, buddy of mine named Glenn Garland, who every month he has a new, uh, a new interview with like cool. the editors of the hottest new project that, you know, like there's so much cool stuff 
and I'm not really doing any of it, but I'm certainly proud to to be associated with uh, that's, that's great. Does it lead to work sometimes or or does that networking lead to new collaborations? Maybe. I mean, you know, that's always hard to say, too. Like, I think I think every connection you make in this business ultimately potentially leads to to work. Um, I for me, I think the connections in ACE probably lead to, to more um, creative friendships yeah. and like people who can share the same like I'm experiencing this problem on this movie Oh yeah, I totally experienced that before, and this is the kind of thing, you know. Um, and so I love, like, I love watching the panels that Ace puts on because I love learning about other editors' processes. And um, uh, you know, and sometimes I'm like, oh my god, how could they do it that way? That's ridiculous. And sometimes I'm like, whoa, that's exactly what I was looking for. Um, so you know, and 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 for sure, if you're new in your career, uh, and just coming up and they have programs for assistant editors and up and coming editors. I think it, it's a great, it's a, it's a great way to meet people that may turn into, that's, that's you know, great. work. Uh, will you tell me what led to your first meeting with Sylvester Stallone and, and uh, what it felt like sitting with this American film icon uh, when <laughs> yeah, you guys really hit it off? In 2003, my now ex-wife was a, a post-production executive at Universal and um, a great editor who's, who's also one of my mentors named Don Zimmerman was editing a crappy movie called uh, The Cat in the Hat. And he and his two twin sons, Dean and Dan, were his first assistant editors. Both have gone on to become amazing editors. Uh, amazingly talented editors who work on incredible projects um not to toot other people's horns but dean dean just finished the fourth season of uh, stranger things which was uh, amazing so don at the time had been editing on a program called lightworks or heavyworks for many years and just the way the industry was going and technology and this was going to be a big visual effects movie he was switching over to Avid Media Composer. I had been editing on Avid Media Composer at, uh, on, you know, real small, like TV MOWs. And uh, I had been at USA Network for a while on the Universal lot. And so Don was looking for, I don't even, I still don't know what the job was that I did. It was sort of an assistant editor, but it was somebody really who could teach the whole, mm. the crew Avid Media Composer. So I'd been editing on Avid Media Composer for years. My wife, who was the post-production executive on that movie, asked me, would you be interested? It would be a great way to get in with a great editorial team and on a big movie. And I was like, absolutely. And I did. Uh, and so um, had a great working with relationship with Don and uh, and the boys and Dean and Dan, and they're, they're all great friends today. And a few years later, Sly decided he was going to make this last episode of Rocky and called Don, who had been his editor for years throughout the 80s, and said, I want you to edit this movie. And Don was not available. And Sly, being Sly, said, well, what the hell are we going to do? And he said, you should meet this kid, Sean. Like, he knows what he's doing. He's blah, blah, blah. So he met me. Um 
And I, I remember that first meeting. It was crazy because I was like editing this short-lived TV show. I read the script for Rocky Balboa and I didn't think the script was very good. It didn't have a lot going on. It was like, and so I, I went in and as I do, when a director asked me, did you read the script? What do you think? I told him what my issues were with the script. I, I remember, God, it was so long ago. I remember thinking not much happened. So in reading the script, I remember feeling like Rocky's got a pretty good life. Like, yeah, Adrian's dead. It's kind of sad, but he owns a restaurant. Like the way it was written, and this is the way I realize now after years of working with Sly, this is the way he writes. He doesn't put a whole lot on the paper. He just puts, yeah, he just puts, you know, okay. interior restaurant night and then the dialogue and that's it. He's He's not talking about, you know, looks people are giving, what they may be feeling in the moment, like this kind of things that that you tend to read in other scripts where you're like, this is what's happening for this character. So you know how they'll be emoting. And so what I read was Rocky's got a pretty good life. He owns a restaurant. He's, he, you know, he's got a decent life. He's got, a, he, 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 maybe he's got some problems with his kid. And then all of a sudden out of nowhere, he just goes, I think I'm going to start fighting again. And so to, to Sylvester, who's direct, you know, he's writing, directing, he's going to be acting. He doesn't need to write that because he knows what's, what's happening, but you're not getting it reading that script. That's funny. Right. And that's what he said to me. He sa I said, look, I, I feel like there's no real inciting incident. Like, I don't understand what's driving this guy to like change, you know, and, and Sly just looked at me and he goes, it's all in here. <laughs> and I was like, all right. <laughs> And it was, you know, the truth is it really yeah. was. And that's, that's how, that's how he does what he does. It's how he, it's, it's how he writes and directs. In an interview, you said that he uh, oftentimes will give you notes, like throughout the day you're, you're getting notes. And then you made the mistake once of, of staying late and making those revisions only to have him come in the next morning with like, <laughs> he'd reworked it all in his mind that night and had a whole new vision. What's that like? That was a great lesson I learned early on. So, so, you know, I'm, I'm trying to impress it. Yeah. A, a, not only a new director, but Sylvester Stallone, like that original Rocky movie in some ways was maybe the most inspiring cool. movie to me as a filmmaker. Uh, so, you know, and then I grew up, you know, I, I was, I was a kid in the eighties. I mean, that it was all Sylvester Stallone. And so, so trying to impress this guy, give me a bunch of notes. And then he just gets up at, Six thirty, seven o'clock at night, and it's like, all right, I'll see you tomorrow. And so I assume I'm supposed to stay all night, like making this work. And um, and what I realized quickly is he would forget ninety percent of what he said to me, and he would go home. Not only would he go home and and conceive yeah. a whole new thing. I mean, his brain is constantly moving. He would conceive a whole new thing. He would he would assume that he either told me about it or that you know or that i somehow should have and then he'd come in and i'd go all right so let's look at the stuff that we talked about yesterday and i'd hit play and he'd go hang on a second hang on a second what about that thing that we talked about that you know and i'm like we didn't we didn't talk about that and he's like come on man like what you know when are you going to show so, uh, another sort of version of sly that i love to tell is um it was it was on the the rambo four uh, John Rambo, actually, 
there was this scene in the rain and he's having a conversation with the girl and she convinces him to, to go on this mission. And it was a great scene. And, you know, the first time I put it together, it was just a beautiful scene. And he, you know, we watched it the first time, had a couple of tweaks. Uh, and then we it just went on and we keep going through the film and we keep watching the scene and he wouldn't say anything. About four months into this process, we're watching the, the movie yet again, and we get to this scene, and he goes, Sean, 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 stop, stop. And I stop, and he says, when are you going to show me this scene the way I intended it when I shot it? Oh. <laughs> it's like, really? Oh, you want to see that cut? Sure. <laughs> I'm like, okay, so you don't like it? <laughs> like, when did that happen? Yeah. Uh, he's, he's quite a character, that guy. And, uh, we, we did some, we did some really cool work together and we had, uh, some funny times and I have a lot of funny stories about him. You talked about a fight sequence. I think they shot in Las Vegas with like nine cameras rolling. And then, and and then he said, can you have a a cut for me to look at like the next day? And you had to race back to Burbank. What was that like? Gosh. Where do you get all this information? You like what? Yeah, so it was the first thing. I think it's the very first thing he shot on that movie was 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 all those however many days of fight stuff. And I'm in Vegas, and I don't have an editing room in Vegas. And he literally says to me, "They've got like four days worth of the shooting done." And he says, "Can you get this together tomorrow?" And I'm like, uh, 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 "I guess I'm not going to say no to the guy." It was my first task given to me by Sylvester Stallone. So yeah, so I ran back to L.A. and I put the entire <laughs> fucking last act of the movie together in a day. Wow. So as I'm putting it, to, I, I put it together round by round. Um, I put to, first, I put together. Round one, mm. fight only, sent that off to my assistants to start putting sound effects to round two. And then when I get round one back with sound, after I got through the rest of the fight, I would start going through the material of the, I, I sort of, I look at f- fights and, and sports competitions in movies as like concentric circles, right? So there's the actual fight. And then you have to start figuring out like, what does each hit mean and who does it mean something to? And and so then I start thinking about whose face should I be cutting to? So, so, you know, Rocky just got slammed in the face. Do what's the reaction from his opponent and what's his reaction and what's more important in that moment. And so I start thinking about those reactions. And then Mm -hmm. I start thinking about the reactions just outside of the ring by his his trainers and then of course his his love interest on the way outside and his son and things like that it reminds me of something uh else i read you said about in a fight each uh like sequence or each action has its own story arc which seems like what you just described yeah i i think it's uh, that absolutely positively and it's why you know i do i do a lot of sort of fix-it jobs like i'll get called in people who have a movie and it's not quite working like what's not working and particularly in action films and sports-based competition Mm. films it is usually lacking what i just described it's it's you know you might have super cool uh battles footage or or you know or fight footage or football footage but if you're not telling the audience through editing what each beat in that 
in that action sequence means and who does that mean something to, then it just becomes a collage of like fast cuts and hits and whatever. How challenging is it working with a director who's also the, the star of the film, who also wrote it? And, and what was that experience of, uh, I imagine in a lot of ways, you, you have to take on more of a director's cap yourself as, as, you're, help, as you're sitting there with Sylvester Stallone figuring out what the story is. What I found in working with him is what he desires, even in the moments where he's like, shut up, man, you don't know what you're talking about, mm. is he desires that combative creative nature, right? He doesn't want a yes man. He does. And so I definitely, in my experiences with him, had to take on that role specific, very mm. specifically to his own performance and his own look. Mm. I got with him when his career had been in the toilet for many years. And now he's trying to, first of all, put an elegant end to the Rocky franchise, which he felt he had not done in Rocky V, which I agree with, and to maybe revitalize his own his own career. And so there's a lot of vanity there. And so, um, you know, he's looking at himself on screen saying, God, I, I, I'm so old. I look, there's wrinkles and we, you know, I don't want to be on this angle. And, and a lot of my arguments with him, particularly on that movie, were um, that's exactly who you're supposed to be in this movie. That is who Rocky is. Like, that's the movie you wrote. And so we would have, you know, we'd have a lot of arguments about that kind of stuff. And yeah, and, and, and again, like, you know, because his process is combative, we would argue. And because of what I was telling you earlier about how he'll oftentimes just forget what was rolling around in here yesterday – and come in with a new idea, um, I was able to bring back things that I knew were best for the movie, um, sometimes by just telling him it was his idea. That's funny. That's smart. <laughs> I think you were maybe talking about Expendables when you said that he has a style of, uh, in the edit, stripping away everything. And especially in a movie like that, I think 17 you know, big movie stars in it, where you have so many different storylines you could, you could focus on. What is that process like? Uh, and so he strips it away and then and then rebuild or figures out where to build from there. How does that work? It's a very interesting process and something that I found very uh, frustrating at first until I realized what was happening. And the first time I experienced it was on Rocky Balboa. Uh, Burt Young, who plays Polly in the movie, had done some interview somewhere and had said something like one sentence that Sly was pissed about. He thought he thought it was derogatory toward himself. Um, and so suddenly he came up with this idea that nobody likes Polly. Uh, nobody cares about the character Polly. We're taking Polly out of the movie. And, you know, my reaction to that is like, it was yet another morning where he came in and was like, all right, we're doing, you know, and I'm like, whoa, what? Um, uh, having been a fan of Rocky my entire life, of course, that is so untrue. And I knew it was untrue. But, but what I, what I found out was that there's a lot of brilliance that comes out of those those frustrating moments and so w what i found out then and 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 became part of how i worked with him from there on out was um always let him do it i'd like to take expendables 3 out of the mix only because i don't feel like me and my co-editor paul harb were ever able to get him back to where we were able to get him back to on Balboa and John Rambo. Um, because what our process was,
was on those two movies, Balboa and John Rambo, is he tore it apart. He took everything out, took everything out. No cut more than two seconds in the fight. I mean, it, it was it was horrible. And then we go through it together. The three of us would sit in the room getting to lock picture, and we would just argue. And we would say, dude, this is horrible. Nobody's going to understand what's happening here and why here. And he'd be like, well, what the hell should we do then? And then we, you know, show him and he'd be like, all right, that's fine. Um, and, and slowly but surely we would get the, the movie and the dialogue and the fights back to a place that we felt was not just confusing, mm -hmm. but then would uphold the integrity of what we were talking about earlier. And that each, each, you know, action moment is either telling a story, starting a story or ending a story. And so, and so on both of those movies, we were able to, through this, through this process of the three of us banging it out in a room for a couple of weeks, able to get back to that place. Expendables 3 was a different scenario in which there were a lot of chefs in that kitchen. The last two weeks of locking picture was um, me in a room with Sly and like five executives and Paul and I had been separated <laughs> in sequences and, and rooms. And it just became this like, you know, I would try to do that process with him and he would turn to his producers who just wanted him to stop editing. And they would be like, it's perfect. It's perfect. You're right. And so I kind of look at Expendables 3 as maybe the worst edited movie I walked away from. Must have been hard. So, so much, so much character development to, to squeeze in there. <laughs> Yeah, it really, it, it it was a it was a huge huge movie, um, and I think that there's a much better movie there than what we ended up with, um, um, which is frustrating for me. But you know, in in the end, it's it's an Expendables movie, and it's and it's fun as hell, and it's an incredible cast, and like people just enjoy it. They enjoy it or they don't. How do you? exert or or i should say protect your vision of of a film and, and sort of uh, maintain as much control as as you can without stepping on a director's toes that's a it's a real it's a real balance and and i think it's a um i mean i hear stories from directors about some editors who are great at it some editors who are just horrible and will some editors just won't do what a director is asking um uh you know the way i yeah, it's like I and and they keep getting work and God bless them. Like if they can have all that control and be the director, I guess. But um, but for me, you know, I feel like my job is, as we discussed earlier, do the very best you can with what's in front of you. I do not believe um, that my first cut of a scene is the best cut of the scene. It's the best cut of the scene that I could come up with in that moment and give myself enough time to edit the rest of the movie. But, you know, I've got blinders on when I'm putting it together. I can't, it's hard to see the big picture. Like, I don't really know the context of this scene until it's all together as one big giant movie. Um, and so the way I see my job in, in that regard that you just asked is like, my job is to to do my best to give the director what they're asking for um, to give the footage the best shake it can get, right? So like I, the footage is going to tell me things that the director hasn't seen or or figured 
and I'm going to do my best to make it work the best I can in that moment. Um, and then when a director or producer gives me a note I disagree with, I am I'm arguing that note as I'm making that change. Trying to do the best I can to make that work, right? And then the best thing happens often, which is I... I don't think this is going to work. And here's why I'll tell you, oh, wait, okay, that's kind of cool. But what if we do this? Yeah. Yeah. And so I have to be really careful not to let my ego get to, because, you know, if a director looks at something I did and they're like, yeah, that doesn't work at all. My ego says, oh, this person thinks I'm shit and I can't do this job. And maybe that person is right. And maybe... I've been pulling the wool over everybody's eyes for 30 years. And so, um, and the truth is it's not my movie. I'm not the director. So, so my job is to do my best, always give my strong creative opinions. And I will argue my point to the point where the director says, no, 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 let's, let's do it my way. And I'll drop it and do it their way. And then I'll bring it up a day later, two days later, a week later, a month later, sometimes when I bring it up, I say, you know what? I so disagreed with this, but you were right. And and sometimes, like on the, one of my last movies, I just I, I was just sitting with my director. We were talking about this, and there's that one thing that these directors decided it's going in the movie, and I'm like, it should not be in this movie. Um, and of course, they win. And so, you know, there's always that one thing. Was this American Underdog? Or uh, <laughs> I'd lo- what was that? Yes. Tell me about working on that one. Such a great experience. I love these guys. So, so uh, John and Andy Irwin are these, um, they're, they're really, the, they're faith-based filmmakers out of Franklin, Tennessee. They make really good movies. I'm not, you know, I'm like a atheist New York Jew and they're like these, these kind of Southern uh, uh, faith-based Jesus filmmakers. And, but I watched, you know, they, they called me and they, they had been at Andy, uh, two brothers, Andy and John Irwin, Andy, um, they're self-made filmmakers. I mean, they, the self-taught, they've made their own movies. They've done so well, uh, with their faith-based movies and having watched a bunch of them, I can see why they're, there's a lot of faith-based movies out there that don't have to be good, right? That audience tends to show up, um, just because it's faith-based, just because uh, um, it, it's, you know, it, Jesus is is predominantly featured in the movie. Um, these guys make really good movies that happen to be faith-based yeah. films. And, and, and what I really appreciate about those movies, particularly sports-based uh, um, com- competition movies, is th- those are my favorite movies, movies about uh, perseverance, faith in whatever, faith in self, faith in God, faith in something larger than yourself. You know, they called me in uh, to work on that movie. They they also knew they had a movie that was a bit bigger than just their faith-based audience, um, and which I absolutely agreed with. And, and so um, I went down this road with them. It was a crazy road. Like they were like a $65 million budget movie when they first called me. They were about to go into production. COVID hit. They shut everything down. 
Lionsgate said, you're now a $25 million budget movie if you want to make this movie. Wow. And um, and they went back out to all their people and they were like, okay, we have a lot less money to pay you now. Um, and so, you know, when I meet people, as I get older, um, I it becomes more and more important to me to work with people I just enjoy oh, yeah. being with. And I love, like, these guys are amazing. You know, they become good friends. And, and so I was like, all right, I'm in because I love the people. I thought I didn't know them very well, but I love the story. Yeah. And I wanted to be a part of making that story. And so um, we did it. Went to Tennessee, worked with these guys. Uh, Andy had been editing all of his own movies up to that point. And, um, you know, we've since talked a lot, we've become good friends. And, you know, he told me that he felt um, a little intimidated about editing with me. Like he wants to control his vision and he's used to doing all the editing himself. And he had first said to me, I'm just gonna let you edit. I'm gonna try to step back. And then he slowly, he wanted to get into the editing process, which he did. And it was just a great, fantastic creative collaboration between the two of us. Would you guys send cuts back and forth or would you sit in the same edit bay? And how, how's that collaboration work? He was most concerned with like, here, these are the things in my head about the opening of the movie and then the last act, all mm -hmm. the football, the big, yeah. big Super Bowl. So he just sort of dove into that stuff and he would, he would send. So, I mean, I, I obviously had put the whole movie together um, before he started touching anything. Uh, and then he just sort of took a chunk and would work on it for a while and sometimes call me into his room and say, here's what I'm working on. What do you think? And I'd say, I love this idea. I hate that. I, you know, we would just have this very open collaborative conversation. And then he would hand it over to me. He felt that like, he'd be like, okay, here's what I want. Now do your thing and make mm -hmm. it great. Cool. Um, and it was really nice because I, there was, we, we, we talked about it and we were both able to let go of ego in it. And, you know, he took my stuff and tore it up and redid it. And then I would take his stuff and do what I thought it needed to be more effective than what it was. Um, and usually we were both like super happy with the outcome. That's cool. That sounds fun. Yeah. It was neat. Shifting gears to uh, your work in TV, how would you compare the experience for you as an editor of working on TV versus films? And, and what are the things that you like about both, about each? I always prefer working on movies for two reasons. One is the pay rate is much better for editors like me in movies. Oh, I didn't realize that. Yeah, much better. Um, uh, TV, there's, you know, there's usually a cap on, on, rates for editors and TV. Um, and it's quite a bit lower than, than in movies. Um, so that's one thing, but also the thing I love about TV is it, it really, it like sharpens my skills. It's fast. It is fast paced. Like they shoot, you know, a, let's say a 43 minute episode in eight days. You have two days to have an editor's cut done you get four days with for a director's cut if you're lucky and then the uh the showrunner will come in and 
um, and do like four days, five days of, of notes. And then, and then you're like locking picture and you're off and like you're, two weeks. yeah. And you're already getting, and while you're prepping for post-production <coughs> sound and visual effects and all that other stuff, you're getting dailies on your next episode. Wow. Which you have to start working on already. You have to start assembling those. I will say this. I'm also talking about network TV shows. Cause okay. I, you know, I'm trying to think of like streaming stuff that I've worked. I think I've, from what I can tell, I've only done one, I guess two now, like streaming. Like I, I did like one episode of Lovecraft Country for HBO, but that was also, they had they were already going for like a year and a half. They had shot everything. They called me. It was a fix-it job. There was one episode the showrunner was not happy with. Mm. I came in, I cut it from scratch. That was way more like working on a movie. It was great. So the timelines are more like features for, for the streamers. Maybe. For sure. I think so. What is something nice that someone has done for you in your career that's helped you get where you are today? That first job I got editing that um, very low budget, very ambitious. It was a mock talk show for the E! Network, I think. Um, and I had no credits no editing credits whatsoever. <clears throat> and I had cold called this head of post-production at, uh, at a big TV company. And he had known my dad many years earlier. And he heard my last name and he said, are you any relation to Eric? And I said, yeah, I'm his son. And he was like, all right, get in here. Let's have, let's have a talk. I guess that's probably the nicest thing because that, that was the beginning of my editing career. There was no reason for anybody to give me a job as an editor at that point. I, I, like I said, I didn't come up, I didn't come up through the assistant editor ranks as an editor. Many, many do a lot. I end up bringing all of my assistants ultimately end up, you know, co-editing with me and then, and then they go off on their own. Uh, that wasn't my story. And this guy just, just pushed me on these people these poor people. I mean, I didn't know what the heck I was doing. Um, yeah, that was that's, a great thing. That's awesome. How is the role of the editor changing? So for editors who are maybe earlier in their careers, what can they do right now to prepare for, prepare for the future? I would say the role of the editor has already changed, right? Like, so I, I'm, I'm thinking about when I started in the eighties and um, the role of the editor was, like I was saying earlier, right now, if I get a note I disagree with, I'm doing the note as I'm arguing the note because it doesn't take me very long to do it. And I can easily undo it or do a new version of it. Or, mm. and, and all that happens yeah. so quickly. Back then, you know, a director would say, I want to do this. And the editor would say, here's why I don't think that's going to work. Because if I do that. It's a big commitment. Yeah. I'm going to have to send you away for a day. And then you're going to come back and look at it. And then we're going to have changes and I'm going to send you away again. Yeah. And so right. I think certainly that's the biggest way uh, the job of the editor has changed. Um, you know, how it will change, that remains to be seen. I couldn't tell you. I think it's, uh, you know, for, for me, we'll find out. We, we will find out. I, I, don't, I don't see anything currently in technology that would have the role of the editor change enormously like it has you know in the last like 40 years interesting and finally what are you working on now what can we look forward to 
Netflix movie called The Curse of Bridge Hollow is a fun um, uh, sort of kids horror comedy Halloween. Awesome. Yeah. And then um, The Senior, which is another football movie. Awesome. Well, I can't wait. Sean, this was great. Thank you so much for uh, all this wisdom. Great stories. This was a lot of fun. Thanks, Nick. I had a great time.